begin by something. Uh, let, let me do it this way first. You see at the top, uh, top there, I say a tale of two cities. I want to ask you something. Tell me, somebody give me a famous city in the Bible. Who? Jerusalem. All right. Pretty famous, right? Probably the most famous bi- uh, city in the Bible is Jerusalem, right? It goes uh, all the way back to Abraham. It talks about Abraham journeying to Salem. That was Jerusalem. Did you know that? Uh, way back there, Jerusalem, kind of the central city of history, really. You know, history started there and in, the, in that region, and history will culminate there in that region where, where it started. Okay. Well, somebody give me another city. Bethlehem. Ah, uh, yeah, that's that. Was there anything happened there in Bethlehem? Yeah, pretty significant little city. And by the way, the Bible refers to it uh, as a small city that was uh, kind of obscure, obscure to man. But it's not obscure any longer, is it? You know, Bethlehem. Okay, somebody else give me a city. Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh, what was it known for, Charles? It was a, uh, it was a, just a really godly city, wasn't it? When you think of Nineveh, do you think of uh, godly city? Uh, you don't, do you? Okay, but it's a very popular city. Uh, oh, somebody give me another one. Jericho, yeah. Jericho. Um, what do you know about Jericho? What, what's it famous for? The Battle of Jericho and the, and the march around the city, right? You know, when, we take a, when I take groups over to the Holy Land, we go to Jericho, and you can ride camels there and all that kind of stuff. And uh, hopefully we're going next December, and we'll go up there, and you can see they, what they believe are the remains. They've dug in remains of the ancient Jericho, one of the oldest cities in the world, by the way. Another city. Think of another city in the Bible. Who? Galilee. Or really Nazareth. Yeah. What, what's, what's, what do you remember about that? Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, not too far away. Galilee um, is seated on the sea. I'm trying to tip you all off. (laughs) You know, it's also referred to as Tiberias. By the way, we go there. On the Holy Land trip, we go there uh, and we stay right on the Sea of Galilee in a big high-rise hotel overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Your room looks out over the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty cool. Um, and think 2,000 years ago, there were a bunch of fishermen out there called Peter and John and James and those guys. Nazareth, Galilee, what else? Who? Damascus. What do you, what, what, what do you know about Damascus? A very active trade city, but we probably identify Damascus because Paul was on his way to Damascus when he got saved, wasn't he? On the road to Damascus. Um, what else? What other cities? I was waiting to see, Tim, if anybody, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
What do you remember about Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, it's not a good it's not a good memory either, is it? You know, oh man, Sodom and Gomorrah. Wish it, <laughs> no. it was not. You don't think uh, positive thoughts about Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, we sometimes refer in modern times to cities as that's like a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah, or a modern day Nineveh. Any other cities you think of in the Bible, Pharisees? Babylon, uh, which was uh, really more of a country. But, but, but it was both, okay, all right? Uh, we think of modern-day Baghdad, but uh, it was in ancient Babylon, but Babylon was both a city-state. Does that make sense? So Babylon, and I have to tell you something, we don't have real fond memories of uh, our thoughts about Babylon either, do we? Uh, the, na- the, the nation of Babylon took Israel captive, remember? So, what else? Any other cities? Those are all good. I, you say, am I looking for one? No, I just want to see how well you knew the cities in the Scripture. There's a lot of cities, right, in the Bible that we, that we can think about. Well, I want to talk for just a couple minutes, and then we're, I'm going to look at what we're... I, I got to thinking about this as I was working on our, my, my talk with you tonight about uh, last days, and we began last week engaging what are the things that uh, might prompt God uh, to allow the destruction or bring about the destruction of Mystery Babylon. Uh, let's see if you remember anything. Most of y'all have been here a time or two. We are, we've looked at the clues about this, the Mystery Babylon. Is it a nation or a city? I think it is probably a, a both and, not an either or. And, and I told you my view is, and that with a list of growing prophecy teachers, is that Mystery Babylon is what? America slash New York. Maybe some combination of that, but uh, the clues fit us very well. Would you agree with that after what we've talked about? Okay. So... Um, so we're talking about what will bring it down, whether it's America or, or whether you believe Mystery Babylon. There, I was reading this past week again by some folks who believe it is a revived Rome, literally physical Rome, and then some who believe it is a literal revival of Babylon. The problem is it says it sits on many waters, and neither of those sit on many waters. Another thing says that the world comes to it for commerce and trade and all of those sorts of things. And so um, I, I just don't see it. I, I, I just don't see that. But symbolically, it could be any place. And, and by the way, remember when the Scripture was written at that time, there was no America. Uh, now, God is God, and he could have he could have said, it will be America, <laughs> you know, and we would have, back then they would have said, what's an America? But at any rate, there is a lot of mystery, not mystery Babylon, but there's a lot of mystery in the scriptures when you get into eschatology. God doesn't make it all just crystal clear. In fact, let me ask you, why do you think that's the case? Why doesn't God just make it all just real crystal clear? Why, is, why does he use a lot of... Well, the book of Revelation is full of allegory and symbolism and literal stuff for sure. 
and the prophets too. When you read Daniel and Jeremiah, and there is what we call dual uh, apocalypse events that would happen in that, that period, but also foreshadowed uh, the same events that would happen in the final age. Why do you think there's such mystery? Why, didn't, why do, do you think God just didn't come out and say, here, one, two, three, four, five? Anybody? I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, Tyler, I think that's part of it, that it forces us to keep our eyes on him. Uh, there's something about us when we have the answers, we don't depend on anybody but ourselves. <laughs> we might try to change the outcome, right? Uh, I know this is what's going to happen, therefore. So we might try to, to manipulate uh, the outcome. Now, I believe there's a way you can delay some outcomes. I'll come to that in just a minute. What, what else? Any other thoughts about why God may be so mysterious i'm reading two books right now about how the mystery uh the mysteries of the apocalypse or the or, or eschatology anybody else you think why, why why would why wouldn't god just lay it there on top so here it is because now some of it is isn't it but the, well one of the reasons i think is because uh let's take the book of revelation for example when John was writing the book of Revelation on the uh, Isle of Patmos, uh, he wasn't much of a threat on Patmos. By the way, y'all know why they put the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos? They couldn't kill him. They tried. They tried to boil him alive in oil. And it just gave him nice skin. <laughs> you know, they couldn't, literally, they couldn't cook him. Because God had another plan for him. And so they just exiled him to Patmos. Here's one of the reasons there is, there is symbolism and allegory mixed among the literal. It is because John's letter, when he wrote that, would not, if he had have said, here's what's going to happen, one, two, three, just like this, and it would, if it, uh, got out within the culture, uh, it would, it, they would have killed the Christians, all of them. They would have destroyed them to try to change the outcome. So it would have been, it, it would have been a message that would not have been in the least received. But... Here's something we've always known. God makes his word known to his people, right? That's why you can have a person that doesn't know Christ and they can, they can say, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand the Bible. Well, there, that's true. Because the Bible requires something to really grasp its message. What does it require, class? The Holy Spirit living in you. The author interprets that's why again i've told you so many times and you know this that's why suddenly the scripture will jump off the page at you occasionally a scripture that you've read time and time again but all of a sudden it makes sense to you you've had that experience haven't you where you've read it read it and you say that's good that's good that's good and then one day you read it and you go wow that's exactly what i needed why haven't i seen that before i jokingly say sometimes i'll read a passage and say that wasn't in there the last time i read that 
Because that's what it feels like, right? It just suddenly comes alive. Why? It's because the author can take that which at times may not be clear to you, and suddenly in a moment it suddenly becomes real and clear, and you go, why didn't I get that earlier? But the person who doesn't know God doesn't have that luxury. See? Uh, and as I've been talking about in the past three messages, that's why the Word of God is so important. We have to understand the nature and the character of the Word of God. Okay. So, all right. Well, enough of that. that so that, that's some of the reasons perhaps that God doesn't tell us. But um, we're talking about a city, state, combination, nation, city, you know, uh, whether it is America and New York City or whether it is Babylon and Baghdad and uh, whether it is Rome and uh, reborn Rome, uh, all of those sorts of things. The indicators don't seem to be pointing that way. So I want to just do something real quick. Well, I don't know if it's real quick, but I want to do something uh, that I call a tale of two cities because I want to, I want to show you something um, y'all turn over to the book of Jonah. Chapter 2, uh, that's on page 1265. I don't know what page it's on your Bible. That's what it is on mine. Jonah uh, chapter uh, 2. Um, no, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, and we'll look at that in just a second. So a tale of two cities, and here's why I'm setting this up, because of Babylon and the city, which it's referred to as a city in the Scripture. There are two cities that we see where God warned them in the Bible. Um, uh, he, he warned the city of Nineveh, right? And you know the story of Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go preach the, the message of repentance. It was the message that uh, he wanted. But God told him to do it. You know the story. I'm not going to go into that. He finally did it after running, uh, you know, the fish and all the whale and all of that kind of stuff. And he finally, he reluctant, obedient prophet. He went to the city and he told them, look, if you don't repent, you've got... Um, how many days was it? You've got just 40 days, I believe it was. If you don't repent in 40 days, God's going to wipe you out. So I actually think because Jonah wanted God to wipe them out, I actually think part of his running was if he could run away from, at least stay away for 40 days, <laughs> then he'd be off the hook. And since he, they were wicked people, they, they were very wicked, Assyrians. And, um, and, he want, and they had been cruel to Israel. I mean, evil t toward Israel. And I think Jonah probably wanted them to, probably wanted them to, um, to get theirs. And so he runs. I think he's trying to stay away from 40 days. But God, you can't run from God. You know, God... God's with you wherever you are. The psalm said, where can I go? If I go down to the depths, you are there. If I go to the highest places, you're there. You're everywhere. That's what he was saying. And uh, 
uh, Jonah finally um, uh, decided to obey after uh, he found himself in the belly of the whale. One of my favorite parts of the story, let me just tell you this, one of my favorite parts of that story is that Jonah, when he realizes that they're in the storm, you know, out there on the sea and the, on that ship sailing for Tarshish, you, you know what Jonah tells They said, you, you've brought this on us. And Jonah says, yeah, I, it's my fault. That's a loose translation, you understand. But he says, yeah, it's my fault. And then here's what Jonah says to them. You throw me into the ocean, and it'll solve your problems. Now, the, the thing that I've always thought kind of humorous about that is Jonah says, you throw me in the ocean. I am the problem. Just throw me in the ocean. If he knew he's the problem, why didn't he just jump? Y'all do it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it, but you, you, throw me, I'll let you throw me in the ocean, but I'm not doing it. Well, but he goes and he preaches, and you remember what happens, right? Nineveh, 120,000 of them repent in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah then sulks about it. Remember, he, gets, he, saw, he thought he'd preach, he'd preach and they would reject the message and he'd say, okay, I've done what I was supposed to do, I'm out of here. But they repented. And then he pouts about it. He goes, sits down, and, and he pouts about having to go and then he pouts about having gone. And the response in Jonah chapter 4, look at this, what he says, uh, verse 2. Well, look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. They repent. I can't stand it. Now, that's a dysfunctional preacher, isn't it? Here's my message. Repent, repent, repent. Y'all did it. Boy, it makes me angry. That's dysfunction right there. And so he gets angry, and it says in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, look at this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But look at this next statement. Therefore, for now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't that wild? He said, I'm, this makes me so mad. I, just, I don't want to even live anymore. Uh, let me tell you, theologically in the Hebrew, that means stupid, I think. <laughs> but uh, the amazing thing is the statement. He said, I ran. Remember I told you, I think he was running to see if I can stay away long enough, God will bring his judgment on them and then I'm off the hook. He said, that's one of the reasons I ran to Tarshish is because I know, he, look, I know how you are, God. You're loving and gracious and you are slow uh, to anger. And he, here's kind of what he's saying. I knew that's what you would do. And I didn't want you to do that, but I knew that's the kind of God you are. Now, folks, let's fast forward here thousands of years later, and we would say, amen, right? Thank goodness. So, so uh, the city of Nineveh repented, and they got a reprieve. But now, did you know they would become wicked again? And 94 years later, the judgment of God would fall on Nineveh. But they got almost a hundred-year reprieve. 
because they repented. Now, when you look on our prayer guide, we pray God, uh, we, we pray about repenting as a nation, repenting. I changed that years ago. I used to pray for a, a revival in the nation, and I changed that on that prayer guide that you get every week to the word repentance because it dawned on me that there's no revival without repentance first. And I thought, I just was talking to the Lord about it back then, and I thought, God, we need to be praying for repentance. Revival is the byproduct of repentance. And we were praying for revival. God knows our hearts. But the better prayer is to pray for repentance, isn't it? Personal repentance, corporate repentance, church repentance, uh, uh, community repentance, uh, uh, national repentance. Repentance. Revival came here because they did two things. They received the message and they repented. That still works today. And I will tell you, why am I telling you all of this, Lee, as, as it relates to Mr. Brown? Because our hope, people, is in repentance. That's our hope, is in repentance. And if Nineveh could get a reprieve, so could Mystery Babylon. Now, the ultimate judgment is going to happen right i mean that's it's written in it's set it's going to happen but that's how we can we can um, affect god's plan he has allowed that we didn't create that it isn't manipulation it is a means by which god has sanctioned how he deals with nations and people and so I, I i read you that verse because remember this our hope in this country is not in government our our hope uh in this co- country by the way uh is not in goodness our hope is in repenting and turning our eyes to god and god alone and God responds to repent. And God warned, you know, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Did he warn Sodom and Gomorrah? He did. Um, did he warn Nineveh? He did. Did he warn another city? Did he warn them? He did. Jesus warned Jerusalem. You remember that? He said, the day is coming when not a stone will be left uh, on a stone here. And, and he, he told them that unless they repented, that they would become uh, victims of uh, calamity. And it happened in 70 AD. Titus and the Romans ransacked the entire uh, city of Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, tore the temple down there, just like Jesus said. Jesus warned them. Now, let me show you something strange. This was a religious city, and yet it crumbled. Why did it crumble? This was a wicked city, and it got a reprieve. This one got a reprieve, and this one received judgment. Why? Two responses. One repented, right? Nineveh 
repented, as we talked about. Jerusalem rejected the message and the messenger. Right? Makes all the difference in the world. So when we think about what's ahead, that's why we should call out to God and say, God, bring us to repentance. Bring us to repentance. Cause our hearts to be broken. Cause, uh, cause us to, uh, and by the way, when Nineveh repented, it says in sackcloth and acid. You, you, you know what that means? It means they were grieving over their sin. I have yet to see America grieve over its sin. And I do believe, I will tell you this, I do believe that if America were to grieve and repent, that God would give us a reprieve. But the way we're headed right now, whether America's Mystery Babylon or not, or New York City, the way we're headed right now indicates no, no, nothing to say we're, we're repentant. And because of that, the Bible indicates that there are things that we, I think, can anticipate. Now, again, when I say this, I'm not saying that, that we can't seek God, turn from our wicked ways, and then I will heal your land. You know, that principle, how if my people are called by my name, you know, will confess their sin, turn from their evil way, and they'll, they'll turn toward me, I will hear and I will heal. I, that's a principle that God has, I believe, uh, clearly established in the scripture. It works. It just it works in your personal life. It works in the corporate life. But if that doesn't happen, what would it take to bring down a nation? All right? I said all of that to give you one more quick point. Last week, we talked about first, it would be the shedding of innocent blood. Y'all remember that? Let me give you one more. I would say the next would be the persecution. God's people. What would, it, what would cause God to bring his judgment down on a city, a nation, a state? It would be the persecution of God's people. Um, how might that manifest? How might we see that? And, and by the way, I told you earlier, uh, Revelation 17.6, if you want to uh, look there, you can. Let me just read it to you real, real quick. Because this is what the scripture says. It says, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. That's mystery Babylon drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. All right? So the persecution of God's people would be another way, another means that would cause God to say the shedding of innocent blood, the persecution of my people. Listen to this. Michael Spencer writing several years ago in the Christian Science Monitor said this, and I quote, Intoler this was several years ago. In fact, it was over 10 years ago. Spencer said, um, intolerance of Christianity will rise to levels that many of us have not believed possible in our lifetimes, and public policy will become hostile toward evangelical Christians, seeing it as the opponent of the common good. Hello? Evangelicals will increasingly be seen as a threat to cultural progress Public leaders will consider us bad for America, bad for education, bad for children, 
and bad for society. This was written over a decade ago. And he said, what we're seeing is a growing move in this nation. We're seeing exactly that. Now, the Bible says it's going to happen in the last days, that it's going to get more intense. And by the way, you'd have never thought that. Look, this is a, this is a well-seasoned audience. Let me just say it that, that way. In your lifetime, you would have never thought you'd see the things you're seeing today, would you? The things being said about churches and Christianity and how those things are being canceled and, and, um, and censored. You, you wouldn't have believed that, would you, growing up? Y'all, as a pastor, I never imagined. Now, if you've been here, you know, I've been here 20 years. If you've been here for at least uh, early on in my ministry, I've been telling you it was coming. I've been telling you for at least 15 years I have been speaking and saying, get ready for what's coming. But it's gaining traction, hello? And uh, I don't mean that to scare you, but uh, I, I will tell you this. God wants his people to repent. And God may use pagans to produce it. That's another idea we don't have time to chase. But I will tell you this, that... Um, even though you say, well, God's just letting us have with the hostility and all that, that's just a part of being uh, an unrepentant kind of, of culture, unrepentant uh, church perhaps, those things. That's just what happens. And, and, and God may allow that. And I guess you could say, well, we deserve what we get because we, of how we have been or what we've refused to be or whatever. You could, I guess you could say that. But let me tell you something. But God still doesn't like when his people are persecuted, even, even if they're not following him. Did you know that? And you say, how, do you, how can you say that? Well, I'm going to tell you before we go. I'm going to tell you right now. Um, you know, as a pastor, I want to tell you something. If anybody picks on my church out there, I don't like that. They're my sheep. If anybody's going to beat on them, let me beat on them. Right? I'm, I'm the shepherd. Let me be. I don't like it when somebody else beats up on my sheep. They may even be half right. They rarely are because we have perfect sheep in this church. But, um, but when, I, when I hear that, I think, you don't know them. I know them. You don't know who they are. And so it kind of, it, it, it's, I, I think that's a good thing. But I may walk away and say, yeah, our sheep need an adjustment. But that's my task. That's not their task. So when, when, when I hear people criticizing our church or that, and we don't have much of that, I, I should say. Um, if you want to know what they've said about each of you, if you'll see me afterwards, I'll tell you what they've said about you. No, I'm, I'm teasing. But, here, but, but that, that bugs me. Do you know what? God is the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he may not be pleased with his sheep, and he may allow forces outside of the kingdom to, to rein them in. But don't believe for an instant that he likes what those forces are doing to his people. And here's what I close with. And here's how, how we know that. Because in Jeremiah 51, remember Babylon? 
going to come and take uh, Israel and take them into captivity and, and persecute and, and that sort of stuff early on. This is what God says. You who have escaped from the sword, go. Do not stand still. Uh, those who managed to get away, remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come into your mind. We are put to shame for we have heard reproach and dishonor has covered our face for foreigners have come into the holy place of the Lord's house. Therefore, behold, the days, listen to this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will execute judgment upon her images and through all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. And that would happen there. You understand what, that, what he's saying there? He's saying, even though they, Babylon is allowed to, to wreak havoc and to take captive my people, don't you for an instant think that they're not going to get theirs? I will, I'm going to deal with them. They may, they may come and rein my people in and may be an expression of my discipline, but don't you worry. I'm going to take care of Babylon. And he did. And he will. So I'll come back next week and we'll talk about this next thing. Well, there are a couple of more major things that could uh, be the, the means by which or the reason by which God says, I'm going to allow judgment to come on mystery Babylon. Uh, that are biblically. So shedding of innocent blood, persecution of God's people. I'm going to show you four ways I think we're going to see that play out. And then I'm going to talk to you about a couple of more things that I think are part of a big picture of what will, uh, what will cause this kind of disciplinary judgment uh, to fall on mystery Babylon. Okay? All right? Y'all good with that?